Welcome back to Restless. My name is Father Joseph Gill, priest of the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you've joined Carmelina, Paul, and Lauren as together we seek to survive this sweltering heat on this hot June day in which we are... Oh, actually, we're also talking about Jesus, too. <laughs> but we are also having an episode on Stump the Priest. We did one a couple times ago. It was uh, such a big hit that they had more questions and they wanted to talk more about uh, difficult theological and historical things. So I'm curious to hear what your questions are. So Lauren, I think you have the first one. Yes, I do. How do any of us live up to knowing, loving, and serving God with our whole hearts, minds, and souls when we are so fallen, broken, and so inclined to sin? We don't get there in this life. However, so there are different stages of the spiritual life. And uh, I, I like, Teresa of Avila puts them in one way, and John the Cross puts them in another way. I like the John the Cross version because he gives three stages. He says the first stage is the purgative way where kind of the goal of your life, spiritual life, is to purge yourself of uh, mortal sins and deliberate venial sins. So you're really just trying to fight against sin, fight to uh, just live a virtuous life. Then you pass through what he would call the dark night of the senses, which is where you go through some intense suffering, where uh, God starts to really burn out some of the old man so that the new man can be created within your soul. Then you enter the second stage, which is the illuminative way, where kind of the goal is to just draw closer to God through grace and to love him and to learn about him and, and to seek to glorify him. So you're kind of consistently in the state of grace, really trying hard to, to follow him. But then you go through the dark night of the soul, which I think is a great heavy metal band name. <laughs> uh, but that's where you go through this intense period of desolation where it feels like God has abandoned you and you have no spiritual delight. And you, you try to continue praying, but it seems like your prayers are not making any difference. And you know, Mother Teresa went through this for like, 35 or 40 years. You know, after her death, some of her letters were published and she, she wrote, you know, I don't feel God, I don't feel his presence. And that's paradoxically, that's actually a sign of holiness because it means that she's doing it out of an act of her will and not because of what she can get from that relationship. So after you pass through the dark night of the soul, which could be for 40 years or could be shorter, some people go through it uh, shorter, then you enter the unitive way which is where your will is so united to God that you don't even want to sin. Like you start to lose that desire. And even in the unit of weight, like you continue to grow closer and closer, more and more perfect to God. So it is possible to get close to loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. A lot of that comes through suffering, through the, the trials that purify you. But, but I don't think we can ever get 100% here on this earth. And I think very few people get to the unit of way. Not because it's open to all, but I think, more people are uh, just cowards and don't want to take the suffering. So there you go. Have you ever heard about that before? That was an excellent explanation. I mean, I've certainly heard about the suffering that people experience as a way to holiness and this desolation or this lost sense of God. I did not know that Mother Teresa experienced it for 40 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And yeah. I mean, it is kind of scary, right? It's like we all want to grow in holiness, but it's like, oh, do I want to go through all of that? Well, that's the thing, and, and I think I think it was the St. Faustina, but I could be wrong, that Jesus said, I, I abandon most souls to mediocrity so that they won't be lost. In other words, when they're placed in the fires of tribulation and suffering, some souls would turn their back on God. Mm. So God purposely doesn't lead them down the path that they could be lost. Only the generous, courageous souls get led down the real, the real path that leads to Christ. 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Say yes, yes to God. Wow. Speaking of saints, it's a good segue into my next question. So wondering why the Catholic tradition of sainthood came to be and why it became that way when Paul would refer to the people reading his letters as saints. Ah, yes. That word is hagion in Greek, which is the holy ones. And I had a long debate with a Baptist one time about this who said, said, St. Paul talks about saints. Why do you Catholics have saints? So um, sainthood in the early church was just simply acclamation. There was no process for it. It's just if enough people said, that person's a saint, then they became a saint. And so a lot of the saints who we celebrate from the early church were never officially canonized. But the church realized after a while that we need to make sure that these people actually are holy. So the process of canonization, I don't know when it came about. You've stumped me on that one. I have to go to Google, look that up. But, but right now it's a, a lengthy process because anytime the church officially declares someone a saint, that's an infallible act to say that, that person is infallibly in heaven, which means we got to really make sure. So most saints have to do two miracles posthumously, have every single thing they ever wrote, examined, interviews with people that have known it, this person. The pastor at the parish where I'm assigned right now at St. John's Basilica is actually the postulator for the cause of Cardinal Ignatius Kung. Mm. It was a Chinese uh, bishop who suffered so much in like 19 years of solitary confinement and was tortured for the faith. He ended up not dying as a martyr, but pretty much lived as a martyr. And so he's, he's currently working on that cause. Beautiful. Paul? Great. You said um, you were going to use the word ontological. No, I'm not going to use question. that word. Oh, okay. Darn. Um, I was ready. What does that mean? No, it's not, <laughs> uh, it's not a good use of time. Um, I would say um, there's a lot on uh, the internet right now about with Protestants um, diving deeper into Catholicism and orthodoxy. And a lot of them get stuck with orthodoxy. That seems that that's actually it's growing. There's a there's a growing sect of Protestants that are going into the Orthodox Church. So if you're that in that position or in the Orthodox Church and you're saying, well, we have valid or like even from a Catholic perspective, we have valid orders. We have valid Eucharist. It's actually the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And why do I need the Catholic Church? Why do you need the Catholic Church? Uh, ultimately, it's the question of authority. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the challenges with Orthodoxy is that they they are not a united branch because you have the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the, um, you know, Maronite Orthodox and all these different uh, branches of Orthodoxy. So if Jesus's goal and his intention was to have one church, one flock, which he prayed in John 17, then that one flock needs a visible sign of unity, which is being united to one head. And that one head is, and has always been the Holy Father in Rome. Yeah. Now, historically, that was, that was the big debate because, I mean, when Jesus said, you know, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church, the Orthodox would accept that. They said, okay, well, yeah, he was indeed the head of the church. But did the, the head of the church mean to stay in Rome? Because they believed that there were really five major patriarchal sees. There was Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. So anybody who was in those sees was a patriarch all of which had equal authority in the Orthodox view. And in practice, they did to some extent. They had a much lesser reliance on Rome. Yes and no. the first 800 years. Yes and no, because in the Council of Ephesus in the 430s, um, they were really kind of at a stalemate. And the one who broke the stalemate was Pope Leo. Yeah, that's wrong. Who wrote a very famous, yeah, very famous document called the Tome of Leo. And after that, when when that tome was read at the council, 
the council fathers cried out together, Peter has spoken through Leo. Mm -hmm. So there was at least some acknowledgement that um, Peter was dead. But the big question for them, too, was when Rome moved, because really the seat of the Roman power moved to Constantinople, did the papacy move along with it? Because Rome was a dying backwater town in the Middle Ages. It was not the metropolis we think of as the head of the center of the world. So why did this bishop from this little backwater town that had at one point only only about 10,000 people in the city, that's like one-fifteenth the size of Stanford, Connecticut, <laughs> yeah. I mean, why should that have the, all the authority? You know, that was their question. And even the papacy didn't remain in Rome for oh, yeah. It went, for to, a little, it went for to Avignon for a while. For a little bit, yeah. 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 So it's messy. It's complicated. Yeah. I guess from the, just one more follow-up, I think it's, uh, but if you talk to somebody who's Orthodox, who's practicing Orthodox, they would say, well, how, that doesn't affect me. My church rolls up to the, the Patriarch of Constantinople, currently Istanbul, right? Like, I mean, to be honest, like, you know, and, and this is just personal, not the, not the official teaching of the church, but if I meet an Orthodox person, I'm not sure I would try to convert them. Interesting. Okay. Because they have all the valid sacraments. Yeah, that's, that's right? kind so, of my I mean, point. Yeah, that's, that, I guess that's the question. Like, it'd be nice if y'all came yeah. together, but that's why, we, I mean, that's why we have the Eastern rites of the church, the Byzantine rite. Yeah. Which a lot of them were, were, became Catholic. Became Catholic. Relatively recently. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Why become Catholic and not just a Christian? The Catholic faith has a lot of rules. Simply accepting Jesus as your Savior seems a lot easier. This is true. This is true. Wait, what's true? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I think I'm leaving. No. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I think ultimately the religion that we need to seek after is not the easiest one, but the one that is true. Mm. Right? And so the logical, the logical procession is this. Did God establish a religion? Yes. Well, in the Old Testament, he certainly established a religion. He told the people how to worship. He gave them rules for ceremonies and rules for living. And that's how he showed how we're supposed to glorify him. So in the New Testament, did Jesus, who is truly God, establish religion? Yes. In Matthew 16, he established the church. And then he did it again, you know, when he um, gave the sacraments to, like, the, at the Last Supper to the apostles. So seek the truth, not the easiest. But wouldn't you say, though, just to follow up, sorry, I'm going to have a follow up moment. Would you say that it's, would you, would you, if somebody was saying, I'm not on the Catholic Church yet, but I'm consider myself Christian or moving in a Christian direction, you would still encourage that, I would assume, right? If, or, if they were non-Christian at all and then moving in a Christian direction? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, all else being equal. I wouldn't tell them, like, don't be Christian. Okay. I'd say, let's come to the fullness of Christianity. Yeah. How do we know the Catholic Church is the fullness of Christianity? So does it continue to teach the same things that Jesus himself taught? Does it continue to, to worship in the way that Jesus himself instituted? Does it have the authority that Jesus himself gave to the apostles and the, uh, the Pope? There you go. Look at those things. All right, Carmelina, what you got? Okay, so stepping into a little bit of Marian theology. So um, why do we pray to Mary when Christ abolished any need to pray through someone else to reach God? Have you ever asked someone to pray for you? Absolutely. Sure, we all have. Why can't you just pray directly for yourself? Right? It's kind of that same idea. We believe that the church is not just here on earth, but the church is also in purgatory and the church is in heaven. So we can have relationships with our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. 
especially the ones that we know are in heaven, like the saints and Our Lady. And asking Mary to pray for me is just the same thing as asking, you know, asking you to pray for me. But actually, it's kind of, it is a little different insofar as, would you rather ask, um, you know, Bob Smith or Mother Teresa to pray for you? Probably Mother Teresa. She figure, you know, she's kind of a holy woman. She's mm-hmm. probably got the ear of God a little bit. So why not ask the holiest woman to have ever walked the face of the earth? We don't need to pray to Mary. But we should. We choose to. Yeah. We choose to, yeah. Because Jesus himself chose to. He listened to Mary's intercession at the wedding feast of Cana. Can I clarify something for our Protestant brothers and sisters that may be listening? Please. So when, when Catholic tradition, we a lot of times we're praying to Mary. That's a common thing, you know. We, we it's and and I think there's a linguistic thing in there when we say pray. Pray means to ask, so we're asking for Mary's prayers. And a good way to say it is pray through Mary. Through Mary, but a lot of, of times, Mary. but the English gets messy because we have it's weird. So like in old English, it would be I pray you pass the salt. Right. Right. I ask you that you pass me the salt. I'm not asking for your prayers so that you could then. <laughs> Lord, please pass the salt. Right. To this yeah. So there's a linguistic thing there. So I just want to clarify that for, for anyone. Who well, it, it actually helps if you go back to the Greek, because in Greek, there is latria, dulia, and hyperdulia. So latria is worship, and that's given to God alone. There's dulia, which is honor. And you can give honor to living people, people you think are holy or venerable. But then there's hyperdulia, which is uh, the highest form of honor that you give to the saints and especially to Our Lady. So there you have it. Thanks, Father. That's a good question, though. Can a non-Christian baptize their children? And what can we do as Catholics or Christians for our friends who were raised without a faith but maybe can recognize baptism seems like a good idea or a good thing, even if they don't understand it? Mm. If a child is under the age of reason, so the age of seven, then a non-Catholic, a non-Christian parent cannot have their child baptized because the child is saved on behalf of the faith of the parents. As part of the baptism ritual, you ask the parents, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And if they can't say honestly yes, then baptism for that child would not be valid. So so no, they cannot uh, have their children baptized because they just think it's a nice ceremony. That You said that's over the age of seven? Under the age of seven. Over the age of seven, you would ask the child. Oh, oh okay. So, and if the child says, I believe, then absolutely they can be baptized. Yeah. What about those, like the case where any, any, any Christian, any baptized person can baptize somebody else, right? Well, even a, a Jew or a Muslim can do a baptism. They just can't baptize their own child. Oh, interesting. Because, <laughs> yeah, if, if you're a Jewish nurse in an IC, in a NICU, yeah. You know, and, and the parents are like, oh, my, you know, I need to go see my child. It, it could be dying. I need them baptized. You say, I'll, I'll take care of it. And you can go and do it, even if you're Jewish. That's very confusing. I think that makes sense. But so how do we as Catholics encourage non-faithful friends to baptize their children? It, you know, because like if someone is was not baptized, right, they didn't get their faith from their parents. That's not really on them. I guess at, at a certain point, they've reached full maturity. They should have had questions by now and asked who God is and tried to find him, and maybe they didn't. Um, but I, I think it's a hard thing, and I know so many people that don't have faith, and now they're all having kids, you know? So I want to do something for them, but I don't even know how to approach it. Or Well, I'm going to say something controversial. Okay. Don't. Don't. Don't have their kids baptized. No. But... Well, I guess the first step is talking to them about the faith. Right, right. You know, and converting their hearts. Con- converting their hearts. 
So I guess when does it, when, when is it that you, you, it's a care for the child, right? Under, under seven, just for that, clarify, versus the parents. Is it because the, the child can't, doesn't have that support network to kind of utilize the grace that comes through baptism or something like that? Yes, but, but ultimately it's because baptism is effective for infants because of the faith of the parents. If mm. the parents don't have faith, it's really not uh, effective. I mean, baptism, sacraments are not magic. Mm. You know, they don't work without faith. There's no, there's no effect. I mean, yes, yes, a child would be validly baptized. I mean, I know, I know a woman who baptized her granddaughter in the bathtub because her, grand, her, her daughter had left the church and decided God wasn't important in her life. Is it a valid baptism? Yes. Did the child receive grace? Maybe through the, the example of the godmother, may, grandmother, maybe. But is that optimal? No, yeah. definitely not. And I think, I think actually the God, so an important, important principle is that God requires us to use the sacraments, but God is not required to use the sacraments. He's not bound by the, not sacraments. Bound by the sacraments. So yeah. he can give his grace, his saving grace to whomever he wants, including children that are, that are not baptized and have the misfortune of dying before the age of reason. Yeah. I guess it's hard. I think, I don't know if this is where you're coming from, Lauren, but it's hard when, you know, at least um, a lot of the millennial generation, their parents had enough, they're connected with the church enough to baptize their children. But now, but it's, it was like not as strong of a faith as maybe their parents, mm-hmm. their, like our grandparents, right? And so now we're at the age when we, a lot of our friends are having kids and family members are having kids and they're not, and they might have been raised Catholic to some extent and not baptizing their children. And it's just hard. It, it is hard. It is hard. But the, the issue is not baptism, it's faith. Yeah. Hmm. You know, because you don't want to have a kid baptized and then if the kid's never taken a mass, then the kid falls into mortal sin, you know? Hmm. Right, because now you have the obli- all the obligations of being a Catholic. When you have no faith and your parents have no faith, then what about being connected to the life of grace through baptism? That seems kind of important to me. It does, but again, God is not bound by the sacraments. Okay, He He gives. There's a lot of grace that happens outside the sacraments. Okay, for example, if if you're in the state of mortal sin and you have the grace to repent, that's grace that you've received, even though you're not in the state of grace. So can God give a saving grace to, to babies? Absolutely. We trust and trust them to the mercy of God. Carmelina. Okay, so... You'd raise your hand, so... <laughs> yeah, you did raise your hand. I was just talking about grace operating outside of the sacraments. Oh, please, no, go ahead. Oh, no, that was just my I was life. reacting. Oh, that was <laughs> yeah. your life. That was your yeah. life, right? Uh, yeah, but that's not a question, so... Oh, but it's a cool <laughs> story, though. It is a neat story. Um, but yeah, so what's purgatory, Father? And where is it supported in Scripture? Purgatory, Yeah. It's, it's a logical reality because if God is the all holy one, why would you want to come into his, nothing could come into his presence that is stained. And so purgatory is necessary then to cleanse all those stains and to be able to you know, stand in his presence. It is in scripture, but our Protestant brothers and sisters kicked that book out of the Bible. Second Maccabees chapter 12. Boo. Why would you want less Bible? <laughs> I want more Bible, you know? Oh my gosh. The number of times I hear the Catholics added books to the Bible. Balls. Like how far after they claim, like someone was just telling me like hundreds of years later. And I'm like, no, they didn't. It was always in there. Always in there. Martin Luther removed it and they'll just debate you and debate you. And I'm like, but this isn't the point. What do the teachings say? And, And can you accept them? Yeah. It actually is in the New Testament as well. It's in 1 Corinthians, uh, either chapter 1 or chapter 3, I can't remember. 
But St. Paul is talking about how um, at, at the judgment day, everything will be burned up by fire. And he says that, you know, if you built with stone and, and you know, solid iron, your work is going to survive. But if you built with straw, it's going to be burned up, but you will be saved only through fire. She actually kind of says that kind of, and a lot of people have interpreted that to mean purgatory. Hmm. So what is purgatory? What is it? What happens there? A place of purifying love. And love is painful. Learning to love is painful. What does it feel like? I don't know. I haven't been there. Oh. <laughs> Read The Great Divorce, maybe. I don't know. That's a good one. Yeah. I think, I think some of the saints have said it's when you see God face to face, you realize everything, every, all the fulfillment of every desire, and then it's taken away mm. for your time in purgatory so that you can grow in your desire for that grace of the beatific vision. Right. And those in purgatory cannot pray for... They cannot ask for prayer, right? They have to be interceded for. Uh, they can't yeah. pray for themselves. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're not. I don't think they can pray for themselves. And they need our prayers to get out of purgatory, maybe. Yes, but not a little as, sooner. But they yeah, will but get out of purgatory. Get, yeah, purgatory is not forever. Right. Anyone in purgatory? End. Everyone in purgatory goes to heaven. Correct. They're in their preparation for heaven. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like the the apologetics, like modern apologetics. If you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in purgatory, it's like, well, get rid of that word just for a second because it's loaded with Catholicism. <laughs> must, must get <laughs> rid of forbid. that. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, it's it's purification and preparation. That's like the better, like that's the nicer way of saying it to people who react strongly to the word purgatory. Yeah, which we can see here on earth, the purification that God allows us to endure through suffering. So since we touched on the, why did Catholics add books to the Bible or take them away? Whatever it is, <laughs> can you uh, touch on that? The Protestant argument. Well, the, the Orthodox Bible has more, I believe, as well. They have Maccabees 3 and 4. Oh. So oh. if you want more Bible, go ahead. Yeah, maybe it will become Orthodox. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Plus, their priests can marry. That's no, cool. they can't. Well, that's married men. Married men. Married men can be, okay, you have to be married first. Mm -hmm. and then you and you can't become a bishop. It's the same for Catholics. It's for us. It's the same. Yes. Catholics, yeah. Kind of. Very rare, rare circumstances as Catholics. But the books, yeah. So which came first, the Bible or the church? The church. The church came first. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the New Testament wasn't even written until beginning of 30 years after Jesus, you know, Mark's gospel. Ended. Well, the added books are in the Old Testament, though, in the Talmud and the Torah. Yes. Anyway, go on. Yes, they were there. But, but I mean, so, but the question is, all these books are floating around. There was not one solid list, even of the Old Testament. Mm, true. You know, you had different communities in Alexandria that had different books. And the big difference of those books, called the Deuterocanonicals, is because they were written originally in Greek and not in Hebrew. Mm. And so certain communities accepted them because they're like, well, you know, we believe it's inspired. And others said, it's not Hebrew. We can't have them in there. So even in the early church, there was a debate about Maccabees and Tobit and Esther and parts of Daniel. Um, but finally, it was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 that they, the final list, the canon of scripture was written. So there you go. And there were books that some people at, at the time considered to be part of the Bible that were kicked out. Not, be, not kicked out. That's, a, that's the wrong word because there was, it was never officially defined because they were just trying to figure it out themselves. Hmm. So where does this claim come from that Catholics added books to the Bible much later? I have no idea. Okay. Well, I think I think it's because depending on if, what what if you're talking to Protestants, especially what like council they deem as the final council for which they're going to oblige themselves. Okay, so they may um, dispute the Council yeah. of Nicaea. 
It could, could be. Usually, in, usually in they doing so, pick that. In, do, in doing so, they uh, they would have to kick out all Trinitarian theology. That's right. That'd mm. be a problem. And the yeah. creed. Right. Mm. And, and I think that... Oh, and also, after the Reformation, there was their... Um, all the re- they reformed churches. So they said, well, we're just going to take everything out and then rebuild from scratch. And that's how they get to that, which we would say, well, what about that other like 1500 years? <laughs> or actually, I guess it'd be 1200. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I had a conversation with a guy who's Baptist and I asked him that question. I was like, it's like, well, your church, you know, came about in what, I don't know, the 1700s, 1600s. He said, no, our church was the original church of the apostles, and it had to go underground when Catholics came in and took over. Mm. I was like, what evidence do you have for that? Do you mm. have any documentation that talks about the secret Baptist church? No, of course not. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, man. Then I pushed him off the cliff. We were, we were hiking that day. But <laughs> That's not very charitable. I didn't really do that. I know. It was a joke. I'm aware. Okay. I was adding Because I'd be joke. in jail for murder. All right, next question. Easy one. (laughs) Well, now I just admitted it on air. There you go. I have an easy one. Can our non-Catholic brothers and sisters receive the Eucharist? Why or why not in the Catholic Church? Only in one circumstance. They're on their deathbed. Really? Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. They're on their deathbed, and they profess faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Oh, wow. Because at that point, if you're on your deathbed and you profess faith, you're pretty much Catholic. That's your way of entering the church. Like it or not. <laughs> so baptism or confirmation, or I guess confirmation would need not apply, but baptism need not apply in that situation? We have to be Christian and to be baptized. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Although but, if, you're, if you're not a non-baptized Christian, which there are some out there, then baptism would be the proper sacrament yeah. for your deathbed. But isn't just believing in Jesus good enough to receive? No, because to receive communion means that you are in communion with all of the believers and with Jesus Christ and his church. So it, it is the visible sign of unity among all of us. So if you don't really have that real unity, then it would be a mockery to make to engage in the sign. Yeah. What I love too is I think we talked about this here. Amen means truth. So be it. Or okay. let it be, yeah. And so, you know, we receive the body of Christ and we say Amen. So be it. You know, True. it's like we acknowledge it every time we go up and receive it as Catholics, and yet so many of us as Catholics don't believe in the true presence. You know, priests too sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. The challenge. Somebody sent me an email today that that was this article is like talking talking in a good light of oh how ninety seven percent of priests say that the Eucharist is the heart of their life. I'm like, what are the other three percent of priests thinking is the heart of their life? <laughs> I don't know. Anointing of the sick must be. <laughs> it must be. It just must be. My favorite sacrament. I give it to everybody. <laughs> sick, healthy. You stubbed your toe, anoint you. I have one more question before we end. How long did Jesus hang on the cross? Six hours. Not, Why does everyone think three? Not three hours. Actually, the, the Gospels disagree. Oh. Um, but John's Gospel is very clear that he went on the cross for six hours because he was on there at nine in the morning, and then it got dark at 12 to three. So that's kind of what people are like, oh, he was on there for three hours. No, it was six. According to John's gospel. And he was there. He was the only eyewitness of that part of the crucifixion. Yes, he was. Good for John. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you guys have like a gazillion more questions. We are out of time. We are out of time. So we will save this for our third stump the priest at some point, somewhere deep down the line. 
But thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Restless. You can find us on Veritas Catholic Radio, 1350 AM, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Have a great day. Thank you.